0: Thank you Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today. Cheryl Cashin will talk about the history, mechanisms, and effects of residential segregation by race and class in the U.S. And the economists Peter Victor and Robert Pullen will talk about economic growth and the climate crisis. Can we solve the crisis without junking growth? Residential segregation by race, and to a lesser extent class, is one of the most prominent features of life in the U.S. But before the early 20th century, racial segregation was largely unknown in our cities. How did it come to be? And what does it do to us? To answer those questions, here's Cheryl Cashin, who's just out with a book, White Space, Black Hood, Opportunity, Hoarding, and Segregation in the Age of Inequality, from Beacon Press. Her day job is as professor of law at Georgetown. Cheryl Cashin. There's a habit of American thought where we blame individual actions for what turn out to be social and political problems. Issues around residential segregation have deep, deep roots in public policy and also the actions of institutional actors like uh, banks, right? Let's go back into that history. How did really serious residential segregation get going in the United States?
1: It began primarily as a reaction to the Black great migrants, beginning in the teens as waves of Black Americans left the South, to flee Jim Crow segregation, going North, Midwest and West. Cities I give the example of Cleveland that actually hadn't had residential segregation and black people could live where they wanted. Suddenly feared an invasion and they started through series of action: exclusionary racial zoning, Supreme Court strikes it down, restrictive covenants, straight up violence. But to your point, it's the federal government that really begins to institutionalize segregation when it decided to insure 30-year mortgages, convince lenders to create this new product to bring home ownership to the masses. And the federal government says, we'll insure mortgages, but only in white areas. So you lenders must redline.
0: This was uh, 1930s.
1: Right, in the 1930s. So it's, it's official policy Every major black neighborhood where great migrants landed, they mark them with a D, the lowest rating, mark them expressly as hazardous. And immediately those neighborhoods are cut out of or the residents of them, cut out of you know, the signature wealth building subsidy of the federal government. And then there are others that black people are cut out of VA back loans as well.
0: That's a point worth emphasizing, that the federal government has intentionally, as a matter of policy, subsidized homeownership. And given the racial disparities in homeownership, that means that the the subsidies themselves exacerbated inequality.
1: Right. Actually, the, the subsidies exacerbated, but also constructed inequality, right? Every black neighborhood, with rare exception, is marked as hazardous. Immediately, you get disinvestment not just from private actors, from public actors. There was a recent Federal Reserve study which showed that eight decades on from that initial decision by the federal government, the same redlined neighborhoods to this day, it correlates with um, decline, disinvestment, segregation. So the federal government is is the big, uh, I would say, What's the word?
0: Yeah, you could say bad guy, really. If
1: you'd like. No, uh, but you know, The right, malefactor,
0: the evildoer.
1: Yes. So the federal government teaches redlining. And actually, for, for decades, plays to the desires of white people and shapes them. They basically teach the average white person to be fearful of having Black people as a neighbor. The myth is that your property values will go down, but they encourage that perception. Right. And by disinvesting in black neighborhoods, ordinary people begin to associate the decline and conditions in those neighborhoods with blackness itself. Right. So this is vicious cycle. And then the government piles on with a series of policies that really apply cumulative trauma to black neighborhoods from urban renewal to highways that are intentionally laid to mow through black neighborhoods and create a physical wall between the black and the white side of town to public housing policies where the black people who were removed because of urban renewal, James Baldwin called it Negro removal. Where did those people end up? Many of them ended up in public housing, intentionally assigned on a racially separate and equal basis. Projects for black people here, projects for white people there, right? Overnight, the, the federal government constructs the iconic black ghetto, what happens when 100% of the people in a residential high-rise project has to be poor and black? Boom, overnight you create intensely concentrated black poverty. In cities like Chicago, they built a wall of them that went on for blocks and blocks and blocks and blocks. That made the association of, of negative perceptions of black neighborhoods even worse. And we're still in this vicious cycle,
0: as you say. Um, that redlining of what ninety years ago has had a long afterlife. Uh, you have a case study of Baltimore earlier in the book, which is full of m- many interesting details about the original redlining era, but also the afterlife of that. So let's talk a bit about that. Transit planning is part of this. Mm-hmm. The rooting of light rail, for example. Could you talk about that? Uh, that Baltimore case study was the, the red line, aptly enough. Yes.
1: So Baltimore, if I could pull up a map and show your listeners, you would see east and west Baltimore, heavily black. It's referred to colloquially as the black butterfly, whereas the middle of the city from north to south is very white and Asian. It's often referred to as the white L, right? Well, for about five decades, there had been a paper plan to create a unified light rail system like BART. In Baltimore. And for de- decades of uh, resistance, particularly to white areas, to having a way for poor black people to get to job rich areas, the dog was it was it was called loot rail. But it, after decades of planning, finally, they were going to create a weirdly named or ironically named red line, a light rail that was going to connect east and west Baltimore to the job centers downtown and in the outlying suburbs. They did a lot of planning to try to create jobs for people as they
0: went. You make the point that the, the hearings and the planning process was pretty inclusive as these things go.
1: It was unbelievably inclusive because there had been so much distrust and trauma from large public policies, development policies. There was a lot of distrust in black neighborhoods and the state and the, the transportation authority went through a very labor-intensive process. Every neighborhood had an advisory committee. They were trying to create transit-oriented development where each station, the hope was to spring up renewal in these historically defunded redline neighborhoods, right? They had plans for connecting to people who live there, to the jobs that were going to be created. They had beautification plans, but a lot of it was citizen-driven beautiful, a community partnership. And there was a lot of healing going on in the city because white areas within the city agreed to have this. So it was like there was racial reckoning and repair going on of the civic infrastructure as well as the um, physical infrastructure. And what happens? Republican Larry Hogan, within months of getting himself elected, rescinds the red line he had the executive authority to do that he returned a 900 million dollar grant to the federal government and then reallocated all of the money over 700 million dollars that had been earmarked for the first stage of the red line to outlying majority white areas their road projects not one pothole in baltimore was filled with that money and that's an example. In my book, I argue that we have a system of residential caste. And you cannot understand persistent inequality, racial inequality in this country without understanding this. And, it's, and it's, there's three anti-Black processes undergirding it. Boundary maintenance and then opportunity hoarding, right? Overinvesting in white space and disinvesting in Blackness. And the rescinding of the red line is a textbook example of it.
0: I want to get back to this uh, to expand on it. But there's just one other example in Baltimore, which is really egregious. Um, The planning authorities used uh, highways as a way of destroying what were received as ghettos and dividing populations. Baltimore has a really egregious case of this, a road to nowhere, really a literally pointless um, interstate.
1: There's a picture of it in the book, right? The road to nowhere. They started it, but Barbara Mikulski, who started her political career opposing that road to protect white working class areas of the city from being mowed down by it, she succeeded. And that was the beginning of her political career. She becomes a U.S. senator eventually. So they literally stopped the road despite having condemned a lot of black neighborhoods to do it. And it just sits there unused. It doesn't go anywhere. It's absurd. I have a picture
0: of it. I'm speaking with Cheryl Cashin, author of White Space Black Hood, just out from Beacon. And you do have a chapter subheading, Geography Begets Cast, which is something you started talking about. Um, could you expand on that? It's really a, a catchy aphorism that uh, captures something really important.
1: Right. So, we have a system of caste in this country that's defined by where you live, your economic status, and your race. And we overinvest in affluent white space. And we exclude anyone who can't afford to buy their way in there. And so we afford a small subset of the American population, poverty-free areas that have high opportunity and the best of everything. And they get more than their fair share of public and private investment. And in fact, they are subsidized. The golden infrastructure that they get is paid for by people who are excluded from that space with their gas taxes and their uh, and their sales taxes, their income taxes. At the other extreme of residential cash, we contain and frankly prey upon people and disinvest in high poverty, black and brown neighborhoods. And we tell stories about the people who live in the hood to justify the way things are. And, and what I want listeners to really understand is you could not have Affluent havens that are poverty free without intentionally concentrating poverty elsewhere. And everybody in between those two extremes gets a very different deal. The people who are consigned to high poverty neighborhoods get the worst deal. It is designed, it was constructed by design to contain black people, but it's designed for people to fail. All of the systems are set against people. There's no just no social mobility for poor children who are trapped in high poverty neighborhoods. At the other extreme, it's designed for your success. You rise easily on great schools and job networks. But you know the biggest myth in American society is that high opportunity living is earned and that hood living is the result of individual bad behavior.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the process of ghettoization becomes really self-reinforcing over the decades.
1: It's public policy choices, But once you put in place a structure that's designed to subordinate a certain population, if you do nothing else, it tends to perpetuate itself. That's why slavery lasted hundreds of years. Slavery, Jim Crow, mass incarceration, the iconic ghetto, all of these are intentional, peculiar anti-Black institutions And it just so happens that in post-civil rights America, we are still living with the structures of the public policy choices made in the 30s, 40s, and 50s and on to contain Black people. But everybody's ensnared by it. Something like 7% of residents of metropolitan areas can afford to buy their way into the highest opportunity spaces. Everybody else is subsidizing that way of life and is harmed by a society that's premised on separation and fear and disinvestment or devaluing of the people in high poverty spaces.
0: We have both a segregation of poverty and a segregation of affluence, both of which Mm -hmm. have notable effects in the populations involved, right?
1: Right. The most persistent types of neighborhoods are the ones that you just described and we've been talking about at the extremes. Highly affluent, majority white, increasingly Asian spaces and concentrated poverty, heavily minority spaces. They are the most persistent types of neighbors and we are getting worse as a country. The Othering and Belonging Institute at Berkeley, which is having me out to speak this week, um, they released a study this summer which showed that most of the large cities above 200,000 people are more segregated today than they were in the 1990s. So we're not getting better. And, you know, again, once residential cast is put in place, the people who benefit from the way things are tend to be the most influential and affluent people in society. And they have ways of bending development patterns to their will or resisting, for example, as is, was, has been the case in California for a long time, Repealing single family zoning to open up high opportunity places to something other than a very expensive detached home.
0: What's happened over the last five or so decades? We've seen uh, the growth of a substantial black middle class, professional class, upper middle class. What has happened with the geography of segregation over that period? How's that changed, um, these spatial relations?
1: So, what's interesting is economic segregation is growing fastest among blacks and Latinx people. Black and Latinx one percenters are moving to high opportunity. In pre-civil rights America, you had a system of caste that was based solely on race, particularly in the Jim Crow South. But because of the civil rights revolution, things have opened up. You know, majority of Black people are not poor anymore. And you, know, you do have examples, some stratospheric examples of Black success. So I have agency, me and my husband can move to fluent white space if we want to, we choose not to, but it, it has made the existence for people trapped in high poverty neighborhoods worse. They're, in some ways, they're worse off since the civil rights movement because they've lost the proximity and the influence and the tax dollars of their higher income brethren. We have classism within the Black community. So you experience, I call the people trapped in the hood descendants. That's a term of affection, of love for me. The true descendants of American slavery are Black people whose ancestors were great migrants. Descendants, I think, are among the most other people in this country. Any debate about integrating schools or integrating a neighborhood, the subtext is often, not exclusively, but it's often... Highly negative anti-Black stereotypes that people carry in their head. We saw with Trump and his failed bid to get reelected in uh, 2020, he was vulgarly transparent about it. He cast himself as the protector of Trump, predominantly white suburbs. Thank me. You could thank me for rescinding Obama's affirmatively furthering fair housing rule. I've protected your, your, your home values and your, your, your way of life.
0: That was one of the things about Trump, though. He said out loud the things that everyone else thinks quietly.
1: Right. I will at least credit him with that, that he was nothing if not transparent. He did not hide the ball in terms of how he would bring people to him.
0: We always end up with the last five minutes of an interview with the... uh... The question is what to do about this. What you're writing about is one of the foundational troubles of American society: this kind of longstanding mm-hmm. racial hierarchy and uh, physical segregation, and the whole array of social tensions that come around that. It's kind of a large project to figure out how to reverse it. But what are some ways we can think about improving the situation?
1: Once you understand residential caste and the processes that animate it, the way forward is obvious. So you just reverse those. Processes. So I call for abolition and repair, meaning we should have greenlining of historically defunded neighborhoods rather than redlining. We should have inclusion rather than boundary maintenance and exclusion, inclusionary zoning rather than exclusionary zoning that privileges only a certain type of house, only a certain type of population. And then the stereotype driven anti Black stereotype surveillance that we haven't had a chance to talk about, but it's familiar to people. We need to humanize people in concentrated poverty and give them care and investment, treat them as if they're worthy of inclusion and citizenship. And I give examples of cities, including a couple in California, where once you free yourself of that lens, then you're free to focus on evidence-based strategies that heal rather than divide. So things like universal basic income, the peacemaker fellowships that Richmond, California innovated, gun violence reduced by 55% with a relatively modest investment by treating the people who were most likely to pull a trigger as three-dimensional human beings capable of transformation. They succeeded. On the transit front, there's cities like Lawrence, Massachusetts that makes bus routes from the poorest neighborhoods free. So I give some concrete examples of what a society that's premised on, it sounds Pollyannish, but agape love of all citizens, your policy choices would be very different than the kind of predatory, segregative policies that undergird residential caste.
0: Last summer, it seemed like we were on the verge of moving away from a punitive police driven model towards something more humane and reparative. But uh, I don't know, this year, it seems like we've forgotten about that.
1: You know, this country breaks your heart. But, you know, I come from a civil rights family in Alabama. And one thing that's clear to me is, as a student of this long arced move toward racial justice, we have periods of progress and we have periods of backlash. We're kind of whipsawed, right? But there's no alternative to continuing to fight for the country we deserve and want. So, There was backlash to the Black Lives Matter movement. But I still believe that the people who still hold up signs, I still see signs all over my city that say Black Lives Matter. I still believe we're capable of having a functional, multiracial politics that pursues saner policies that uh, bring people along, particularly people who've been othered for a long time, And progressive cities are the leading innovators, equality innovators in this country. So, you know, while we're still fighting these grand battles of who's going to be president, who's going to control the House, will we have a filibuster, will we have voter suppression, while we're continuing to fight all that, it's still possible in places where you have multiracial power to pass saner policies that make life better right now.
0: All right, great. Thank you. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> Thank you for a little hope, a bit of hope. there. Uh, but we're in New York City. We're about to elect a former cop as mayor. So.
1: So the forces of darkness in this country want you to be depressed and not get up out of bed and not try for something different. I try to hold up positive examples of places that are proceeding on a different vision of what the city can be.
0: I was Cheryl Cashin, a professor of law at Georgetown and author of White Space, Black Hood, Opportunity Hoarding and Segregation in the Age of Inequality, published by Beacon Press. Listeners in the Bay Area, Cheryl Cashin will be appearing on the Berkeley campus on Friday, November 5th, from 11 till noon. For more information and to register, see her website, CherylCashin.com, that's S-H-E-R-Y-L-L-C-A-S-H-I-N.com, and uh, click the Events tab. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. ¶¶ Some of the Fourth Moon is Schubert's String Quartet number no. 10, performed by the Sorrel Quartet. Next, degrowth, not the most elegant of words, as an approach to the climate crisis. Peter Victor, a professor emeritus of economics at York University in Toronto, who's been working on environmental economics for 50 years, believes that we must transition to a world of little or no economic growth if we are to avoid climate catastrophe. Robert Poland, a relative newcomer to the field with only about a decade of climate work to his name, doesn't agree. Bob, who's making his 10th appearance on this show, is a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts and co-director of its Political Economy Research Institute. Here they are to hash it out. Before we start, we just all agree that the climate crisis is a very, very serious threat to human life and civilization, uh, and something needs to be done radically and quickly. I think we probably all agree on that, correct? So, um,
2: I think we can agree on that. one. All
0: right, let's just get that out of the way. Peter, I think uh, we'll start with you. What precisely does degrowth mean? Most of the general public probably wouldn't
3: know the term. So could you define it and uh, give us some background on it? Degrowth is a rather poor translation from the French uh, into English. The French word décroissant apparently has a much richer meaning than simply degrowth, which is rather an ugly term in the English language. But essentially, the proponents of degrowth believe that the physical scale of our economies has got beyond the capacity of the global biosphere to support us. By physical scale, I mean the amounts of materials and energy that we draw in from the biosphere each year to run our economies and the waste that naturally get generated uh, by that because we don't, destroy energy we don't destroy materials when we use them in our economy we process them gain some benefit from them but then we discard most of them back to the environment and rather quickly so degrowth is about reducing the physical scale of the economy in relation to the planet on which we all live now that will entail uh, a number of significant changes, including turning our attention away from our monetary measure of growth, which is GDP, and which is related to materials and energy, but not in necessarily a one-to-one relationship. And that has caused a lot of confusion and I think unnecessary debate. To my mind, degrowth tells us to focus very much on the material and energy requirements of our economy and, and reduce those in absolute terms. The impact of GDP growth and climate depends upon a couple of things. One, the rate of GDP growth
0: itself, but also the greenhouse gas intensity per dollar of GDP. Could you have
3: the greenhouse gas intensity uh, tend towards zero, making growth of much less relevance? Uh, Can I make two points on that? One is we're not just facing a climate change problem. We have a problem that's much broader than that. We call it overshoot. Fisheries data, forestry data, mining data, whatever, whichever way you turn, agricultural data, and you can see uh, problems because of the scale of the human economy. Let's, but let's stick with climate change. Yes, we've actually seen some success in reducing greenhouse gas emissions per dollar of GDP. And even a few countries are showing a decline in their absolute level of greenhouse gas emissions as their GDP has risen. Now, part of that is due to the fact that they're only counting what they themselves produce in their own territory, not what's produced on their behalf in other countries when they import products from them. But this is still only half the story. To deal with climate change, it's not the annual flow of greenhouse gas reduction that matters so much. So all this emphasis on net zero, what is important, misses the main point. We are looking at at a declining carbon budget just to say well we'll get to net zero in 2050 tells you nothing about how much of that budget you will use up in the process of getting there we have to reduce this greenhouse gas per dollar of gdp very very fast in order to stay within the budget and we're not doing that bob any response to that well
2: first of all i don't consider peter victor of course Any uh, serious degrowth proponents as the enemy, and so we're having these debates uh, among people that broadly agree on most things and have some disagreements. And I think it's important to keep that in mind. And I've appreciated over the years occasionally Peter and I have been in touch, and it has been in that spirit. Of course, I, I agree that the issues around climate crisis are not the only ecological issues that we face. I agree that GDP certainly is not a nearly adequate measure of well-being or the ways in which we address ecological issues. I don't think those things are in dispute at all. However, here's where I think we might have some disagreements. I mean, the climate crisis is not the only ecological crisis, but is at the moment and for the next several decades is the most severe and requires the most immediate and urgent attention. So yes, let's focus on that. I don't agree that the idea of measuring the reduction in the flows of emissions tells us nothing. As Peter just said, it tells us a lot. It doesn't tell us everything because as Peter correctly said, we do also have a stock of carbon in the atmosphere that has to be reduced. But Getting from where we are now, which is about globally about 34 billion tons of emissions per year, down to roughly half that in eight years, which is what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has set as a goal, and getting to zero by 2050 in 28 years, those are immense challenges, hugely critical, and it's important to focus on them, though not on those alone. Is it possible to hit those targets and then also reduce the existing stock of CO2? Yes, I think it is. It's not easy. The way through which we do it is, as Peter referred to, is essentially absolute decoupling of economic activity from the generation of carbon emissions. The single most important thing we need to do, not the only thing, but the single most important thing we need to do. Is stop burning oil, coal, and natural gas to produce energy. They're responsible, depending on how you measure it, 75 to 80% of all increment of CO2 into the atmosphere. So, again, it's not the whole story, but if we can't do that one thing, we have no chance
0: whatsoever of achieving climate stabilization. Peter, I, I looked at a paper you wrote uh, for Nature, say, Environmental Economics 2011, and you said the ideal GDP target was $3,815 per capita, or for a compromise solution, 15260 sixty. Now, the first is around the GDP of per capita of Tajikistan and Nepal, and the second is Gabon and Botswana, and well under Mexico. Um, do you still think something on that order is what is required?
3: I need to give some background before I can give you a clear answer. I was asked to to speak at the second international degrowth conference. And they asked me because I'd been doing quite a lot of simulation work on how the Canadian economy could manage without growth. They said, well, what about reducing GDP? So they they set me the task and I I said, I'll take that on. Now, the way I went about it was to say, look, as measured by the ecological footprint globally, the world is in overshoot. We use more of the regenerative capacity of the biosphere than the biocapacity that's available. And so I said, well, what would be a fair share of that available biocapacity for Canada? And you know, I looked at our population, divided out into the global population, came up with a number, it was a very small number. I in fact increased it uh, I think by fourfold and said, Well, now what would happen in our economy if we tried to get down to that level? And then I worked it out with the with my simulation model and was able to show that even at that with those very Demanding objectives, Canadians would be living at a material standard of living roughly where we were in 1976, just not long after I came to this country and it didn't strike me as impoverished at the time. But let me correct you, I never said that that level was ideal. It was a scenario to be compared with other scenarios. The one I favored then and still tend to favor now is a slowing down of the rate of growth until we stabilize growth in GDP at the same time as reduce material use and energy use per unit of GDP. So we're getting the absolute decline in those measures that we need. Now, just to finish this answer, there's a real problem, it seems to me, and that is that the faster you grow GDP, the faster the decline in emissions per GDP has to be simply to keep emissions constant. But if you want to reduce emissions by 7%, 8% a year, on top of a growth of the economy of 3% a year, you've actually got to reduce the emissions per dollar by 10% a year, not the 7% you hoped for. And, And so it's a real dilemma. And I think that as we continue to prioritize growth in GDP, we're missing the main objectives, which is to bring our economies back into some kind of balance with the planet on which we live. Bob? We're fetishizing
2: GDP a little too much in these discussions. As I said, I agree that GDP is not a good measure of overall economic activity, much less a good measure of well-being. When we talk about GDP, broadly speaking, we're trying to capture the overall level of economic activity in an economy. And we can change the composition of overall economic activity uh, in ways that will be dramatically beneficial. So, for example, yes, degrowth of the fossil fuel economy. Absolutely. We're saying fossil fuels is going to degrow to zero. To the contrary, when we talk about expanding the clean energy economy, I want to see it grow quite dramatically. That's the way through which we can sustain economic activity and still have sufficient energy inputs to maintain a decent living standards and even rising living standards and even rising living standards in traditional material sense. So for example, right now, roughly 70% of the world's population lives at less than $10 a day. Roughly 50% of the global rural population has no access to electricity. It would be a huge improvement in their living standard to be able to turn on lights at night. And we can get there through building out a clean energy infrastructure in, for example, sub-Saharan Africa. That would be registered as an increase in GDP. The growth of the clean energy economy will also generate millions of jobs. I've been doing a lot of work on this now for over a decade. So those things I want to see grow. And correspondingly, yeah, I'd like to see public access to public education grow. That would be an increase in GDP conventionally measured. I doubt that Peter is gonna disagree with me on this. I would like to see more spending on overall environmental protection. I would like to see spending on reforestation. Those would be actually measured increases in GDP, but that's not really the point. The point is what are the activities that we wanna see grow and what are the ones that we wanna see contract? And fundamentally, I doubt we disagree on these things. The critical thing with respect to climate change We're not going to get anywhere unless we shut down the fossil fuel industry. And so we need to really focus on that. You see what's going on right now with the fossil fuel private sector and publicly owned companies are sabotaging the world by withholding supply and jacking up prices. And now we have the irony of President Biden talking at the climate conference about the U.S. plans to cut emissions. At the same time, he's begging the oil companies to increase production. Those are the things on which I would, I would hope we can all agree on, focus on, organize around, and defeat the fossil fuel companies.
0: That was the voice of the economist Robert Poland. I'm speaking with him and fellow economist Peter Victor. Bob, could we continue to live the way we do in North America and Western Europe and Japan? We sprawl all over the place. We fly a lot. We drive a lot. Are the physical configurations of life uh, that we're familiar with sustainable, even if we clean up the, our energy act in the way you're talking about? Can we continue to have out-of-season strawberries uh, in January? Or we really need to you know, um, dispense with these things uh, as luxuries?
2: Well, first of all, when we say we... As you, of course, know, Doug, the we those of us living in rich countries don't. Well, I said
0: North America, Western Europe, Japan. You know,
2: and the people in North America, Western Europe, and Japan don't all live at the same living standard. So, if you want to say high-income people in those countries, yes, I think we do obviously need to change the way we live. Uh, I don't think that's true for the majority of the people in the country. That said, we definitely do need to change major features of the physical infrastructure. We need to get rid of the concentration of transportation via private vehicles uh, and greatly increase public transportation, changing the configuration of the urban living so that we change land use, features of land use so that people live more concentrated and we don't have to commute so much. Those things, yes, those are all part of the overall transition to enable us to dramatically reduce energy consumption at the same time. The other things in the consumer basket in a high income country, those things, the services, education, healthcare those things should at least stay the same and rise and should be expanded. Access to education, access to healthcare, should be expanded.
3: Peter, any response to that? Oh, I got lots of responses. OK, uh, that's what you're here for. All, it. First of all, I agree with Bob. I'm, I appreciate the way he's tried to do identify agreements. So let me identify at least the the agreement that we have to get off fossil fuels as rapidly as possible. Now, the question is, is it feasible to replace the energy we get from fossil fuels with what Bob referred to as clean energy? I think by that he means at least uh, solar and wind. Here's the difficulty I have with that. Solar and wind get their energy free from the sun. That part is renewable but they are much more material intensive than fossil fuel energy. So what this means is, as we transition from fossil fuels to technologies of that sort, the increased requirement for materials for mining, becomes absolutely enormous. And people have done the calculations and are sounding the, the alarm now. There's just, A, not enough of some of the important materials to go around. And, and secondly, uh, getting at them will cause incredible damage. And then you've got the transportation of the equipment around the world, which right now can only be done by fossil fuel uh, tankers and so on, and uh, uh, freighters, and so it goes on. And so the idea that we can transition fast away from fossil fuels, which by the way, we've relied upon for two centuries now. And we can do that in something like a, a decade. I mean, that's a dream, It it really just won't happen. You know, when you said in your introduction, Doug, that we have to move fast, that was true. When I started out 50 years ago, we had to move fast then. And then it was feasible, it might have been feasible for 40 or 30 years. But now with maybe a decade, 15 years, fast has become astronomically fast. And I just don't think it's Feasible to do that in a way that doesn't cause as much, if not more, environmental damage as we make this rapid shift to, to the non-renewable supplies of materials required for so-called renewable energy. So that is a that is a key difference between Bob and myself, and that is the pace at which this change can be made. Now, I do think it can and should be and, and will be made. The world will gut off fossil fuels, but it'll be a lot slower than, than we're all hoping for. And doing that, a number of things are likely to happen. One is we will be diverting investment expenditure into things that, in fact, don't aid the growth of GDP. For example, if you build a seawall around Manhattan to protect it from the flooding from rising sea levels and so on, uh, well, that performs a useful function, but it doesn't add to the productivity of the American economy. Those resources would normally have gone in, into factories or into highways, something of that sort. And so what I have done quite a fair bit of work on is to show that, or to explore this question, And to, but it, what it, what you find is that the more funds you put into adjusting and adapting to climate change, and the more funds you put into actually more costly technology, they don't all out, out-compete the existing fossil fuels, certainly not those that are in use. Uh, the more you, you have to subtract, from other places. That will mean lower consumption levels. That gets back to your question about strawberries as a a particular example. And or it means lower investment in the things that normally are needed to make the economy grow. So we have to accept, I believe, that to make the kind of transition that we agree on and to make it as fast and as smoothly and as good for people as possible and for the environment, we are going to have to live with lower and in all likelihood, negative growth in GDP for some period of time. This is why, if I can add one more bit to this, in North America, degrowth isn't a term that's widely used. We've made much more use of the idea of a steady state economy, attributed mostly to Herman Daly, a US economist. And the idea of a steady state economy, defined in physical terms, says that there's some level of materials and energy that we can take from the environment on an annual basis, if we're careful not to, tr- to keep demolishing our habitat for other species and protect that, that we can have a sufficiently well-supported life for all the people who live on the planet. But it won't look a lot like what we've become accustomed to in North America.
0: Bob, are you dreaming of a painless transition well, That actually going to be much more painful than, than you're making it out to be?
2: I don't think so. Let me just address uh, these points that, uh, that Peter just made. Uh, with respect to the material requirements for sol- to build out solar and wind, yes, they are significant. The r- extent to which those materials, the raw materials, the minerals that are used in solar and wind and, and related clean energy technologies, uh, the market for recycling these materials right now is less than 1% of the existing demand and why is it less than 1% because the economic incentives are there to not recycle existing supply but rather to mine new supply. So even to increase the extent of recycling from less than 1% to 5% would uh, increase the share of uh, available materials uh, by fivefold without requiring any additional mining of raw materials. So that's a way to think about the expansion of the clean energy economy and reducing the impact on uh, material needs. Uh, In terms of the transportation requirements, well, I mean, yes, right now, operating ships and operating uh, aviation is through fossil fuels, but by the same token, those are the things that also can transition over time into renewable energy source. Peter said, there's no way we can get this done quickly enough. Maybe he's right, but I don't see him presenting an alternative. Look at what happened last year in 2020. We had a global economic crisis. Human suffering was severe all over the world as a result of the crisis. Global GDP fell by 3.2%. Emissions did fall. Emissions fell by 6% there's no way a contraction of GDP in anything like the time frame we're talking about is going to achieve significant reduction in emissions. And that therefore, the only serious alternative, in my view, is to think about a transition away from fossil fuels, and not just to renewable energy. The first investment area needs to be in raising energy efficiency standards. Engineering literature that I'm familiar with says that we can get efficiency standards such that we can Double our efficiency level at relatively low cost, at roughly one tenth the cost of expanding the renewable energy supply. In terms of the costs here, as it is, renewable energy, solar energy, wind energy are now fully competitive in terms of delivering a kilowatt of electricity. So, this is a way through which we can expand access to energy. Can we meet the target of getting to a 50% reduction in eight years? It's very, very challenging, but there's no alternative if we're going to get even close if we're thinking about it in terms of a contraction of GDP. Even if we were to think about a contraction of GDP along the lines of the of the COVID recession, we're getting nowhere. It's minuscule. And so that therefore, even if we were to do that, which I don't support, we still need to transition out of fossil fuels as
0: fast as possible. Peter, something I didn't really understand, uh, and I don't think you addressed, I read a bunch of your stuff yesterday and this morning. When you talk about a slow growth or no growth economy, a steady state economy, whatever word you want to use to describe it, I'm not sure how that's compatible with capitalism as we know it. Every capitalist is under the pressure to compete, grow, or die. Is it systemically possible for capitalism to live with low or no growth?
3: Oh, boy, you're putting me in a tough position, Doug, because there were so many points that Bob made that are erroneous that I, would, I don't want them to, to, to be left to stand. But I'll, I'll respond to your question first, and if you'll allow me, I'll say something about Bob's points. I don't know what capitalism is capable of. Capitalism has evolved since its early days. It's, it changes all the time. So the way I would like to see the causality go is I would like to see us as a society self impose restrictions on ourselves as to how much energy we wish to use and how much materials we are going to draw into our economy, how much land we're going to protect for other species and so on. I think we need to set these physical boundaries and then if something called GDP, which Bob agrees doesn't mean much anyway, but continues to grow or declines, well, so be it. And if capitalism can survive within those constraints, then I think it, it may well. So the question about capitalism, 50 years, we'll meet again and we can look back and say, did it change? Did the system change sufficiently that it requires another name and so on? I want to just address, address a few of of, um, of Bob's points no one i know in the degrowth movement including myself says the deliberate suppression of gdp is a is a viable or useful policy measure achieving whatever goal we're talking it's it's all a question of the fact and in terms of my own work that this is a society we live in that that prioritizes growth in GDP. And I think you still do that because you'll keep coming back to it as if it's somehow significant. But I'll put that personal criticism aside and just say our society fetishizes increases in GDP. And so when you propose policies that will protect the environment, do the environmental things that we want. People ask, government asks, and I've worked in government, what will that do for GDP growth? And unless you can show that at least it's not going to slow it down, you're in big trouble. Hence, we have all of this interesting green growth, where there are promises being made that we can grow the economy in GDP terms and reduce impact on the environment. But when you understand the economy in physical terms as well, not in step, but as well, the picture looks very different. Listening to you and reading you, I I get the
0: impression sometimes that you think that uh, the obsession with gross is really a state of mind and not a systemic imperative. But I I think you're underestimating the systemic imperative angle here.
3: No, you may well be right that uh, it is a systemic imperative. And that is why there's such a pushback against any idea which would somehow slow the rate of growth. But, of course, historically, since about 1960, uh, the rate of growth in the U.S., other countries has been declining, other Western countries. Uh, we've got the book on the decline and fall of the American growth by, uh, what's his name, um, Robert Gordon, 700-page tome on that, where he forecasts a, a, a virtual elimination of economic growth in the U.S., not for environmental reasons particularly, but before a combination of, of demographic reasons, uh, his expectations of new technology and so on. Um, but there's a huge pushback, you're quite right, from the interests that will suffer from the slowdown in GDP, hence its priority in government. But it's not going to solve our problems as citizens for finding a way to live in some sort of balance with the planet. All right, we're just running out of time. So Bob, you want the you get the last word here.
2: Okay, thank you. <laughs> the broader issue is I actually will disagree with both of you. I don't think the capitalism operates on a growth imperative. It operates on a profit imperative. If capitalism operated on a growth imperative, we would have overturned neoliberal capitalism a long time ago. Under neoliberalism that really kind comes to the fore around 1980 with Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, what we've seen is, as Peter noted, a slowdown in the growth of GDP, but massive increases in inequality. The rich, the super rich, Wall Street have benefited massively through tenfold increases in income on their part while wages have stagnated. And that is a model that is continuing to the present. It has been sustained under Democrats and Republicans in the United States, under President Clinton, under President Obama and so forth. So I don't think that they, you know, we may be talking a lot about GDP. People that work in government may talk a lot about GDP, but the engine of capitalism, the driver is profits. And the thing that we have to stop right now is the huge profit imperative driving the fossil fuel companies. I was just asked this morning to sign a petition and I won't mention exact names, but it is a major museum that wants to uh, mount a whole new project on climate change, okay? It's a major well-known global museum. The museum's new project on climate change is being funded by a major oil company. And so the petition was about stopping the funds going to this museum from this oil company. That's really what we have to fight for. We have to fight against what the fossil fuel companies are doing right now, overturn them, stop them. Again, to repeat myself sorry, if we don't, if we can't figure out how to stop burning fossil fuels there's not really that much else to talk about with respect to climate stabilization.
0: That was the voice of Robert Poland, a professor of economics at UMass. I've been speaking with him and Peter Victor, a professor emeritus of economics at York University in Toronto. Yes, profit is the driving force of the system, but so far, no form of capitalism has appeared where the growth of firms under pressure from competition was not part of the imperative of maximizing profits, both to increase the mass of profit, but also to crush your competitors. That's why I'm mystified by how capitalism could live with degrowth. Now, a planned socialist economy, that would be a different ball of wax. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, sum of Elevator Operator by Courtney Barnett. Till next week, bye.